Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy it and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Hinterkaifeck murders. So the Hinterkaifeck murders occurred on the evening of March 31st of 1922 in which six inhabitants of a small Bavarian farmstead located approximately 70 kilometres, 43 miles north of Munich, Germany, were murdered by an unknown Salem. The six victims were Andreas Gruber, age 63, Cazelia Gruber, age 72, their widowed daughter Victoria Gabrielle, age 35, Victoria's children Cazelia, age 7, and Joseph, age 2, and the maid Maria Baumgartner, aged 44. They were all found struck dead. The perpetrator, or perpetrators, lived with the six corpses of their victims for three days, which is really creepy when you think about it. The murders are considered one of the most gruesome and puzzling unsolved crimes in German history. During the investigation, police heard all sorts of scandalous dirty laundry about the Grubers that circulated over the previous years. One major indiscretion however kept surfacing about them. Some unknown person filed a complaint either in 1914 or 1915 against Andreas Gruber and his daughter Victoria for incestuous relations. At that time Victoria would have been pregnant or would have recently given birth to Cazelia. Now I think the reason that people found out about this was because in the neighbouring town my understanding was that Andreas Gruber was known for being quite violent, quite dictative, quite nasty towards his family. I mean, this is the 1920s, so things were a little bit different back then, but my understanding was he was a rather nasty person that liked to keep a hold of Victoria. He was very controlling. I'd almost go as far as to say he was an abusive helicopter parent that wouldn't let her do what she wanted, and he did what he wanted, and he basically raped her is various accounts I've heard. That's exactly what he did. And to me, he just seems like an overall nasty piece of work. And as we get into the story, you'll see that he definitely wasn't the type of person that was very nice to people. And it was an open secret. I mean, in the neighboring town, everybody knew about the incestuous relations. The worst part of it, though, is that the alleged rumor was that he had actually fathered more children with Victoria, but all of them had died due to his abuse. Whether that's true or not, I mean, we'll never know. I mean, this case is, what, over 100 years old by now? But still, the facts that remain are that nobody really knows who fathered the child, Joseph, and we may never really know the whole true story about Andreas and Victoria other than the stories that were circulated about him. Victoria was a widow whose husband had died in World War One, and the patronage of her son Joseph remains a mystery to this very day. She had had a relationship with Lauren Schlittenbauer, the man who had led the search party that discovered the bodies, and both had publicly referred to Joseph as their child. They planned to get married until Andreas interfered and their relationship ended. Lorenz eventually remarried someone else, though, and he and his wife welcomed a baby. Tragically, it died a few weeks later. Victoria had indicated that her daughter's father was Carl Gabriel, who died in battle in 1914, However, not long after Carl and Victoria married in April 1914, Carl left and returned to his parents' homestead before he headed off to war. In later interrogations, one witness speculated that Carl left as a result of the indiscretions, as there would have surely been questions asked about who fathered Kazilia. See, this just muddies the waters, and nobody really knows who the father is, because you've got Lauren Schlittenbauer, who may have done it, you've got Carl Gabriel, who may have done it, and then you've got Andreas Gruber. The question is, who was the father? Well, we may never really know, because it's so confusing 
as to who the father really was because you've got three potential people but we may never know there was no such thing as dna back in 1922 and even further back so we'll never really know who fathered the child but it's got to have been one of the three of them i'm leaning towards andreas gruber but then again that's only a guess because we don't really know another theory floated at the time was that joseph was actually the child of victoria and her own father andreas and that one of them had killed the entire family before turning the mattocks onto themselves andreas proclivities for incest and abuse were frequently discussed in the neighboring towns supposedly andreas had had other children with Cazilia besides victoria but she was the only one to survive his violent hands into adulthood but none of the injuries to the bodies could be explained as self-inflicted so it wasn't possible that the crimes were a murder-suicide perpetrated by victoria or andreas interestingly enough the court found andreas and victoria guilty and both of them served one year in prison however there is a conflicting report that victoria only served one month the farm itself was built around 1863 less than a year after the murders and the murder investigation the farm was completely demolished revealing additional evidence the mattock hidden in the attic and a penknife in the hay in the barn both of these become very interesting pieces of evidence that i will go into later on in the podcast so there was a, a huge prelude to the murders and a lot of strange things began to occur in and around hinterkaifeck sometime shortly before the attack for example six months prior to the attack the family maid had quit it has been widely speculated and claimed that her reason for leaving was that she had heard strange sounds in the attic and believed the house to be haunted and felt as though someone had been watching her however interestingly enough there's no evidence of this in her police statements which i think harks back to the fact that back in those days mental health was seen as something that if you heard voices if you claimed that you know you heard things and there was nothing there you were deemed to be crazy and you'd be carted off to the mental asylum and i think that plays a large part as to why there's no evidence of this in her police statements because she didn't want to be seen as a crazy person i mean back then mental health was treated a lot differently than it is today back then it was a lot more harsh whereas today people are more understanding about people with mental health issues back then it was a completely different story so i think a large part of why she never talked about any of this was because she didn't want to be seen as crazy and she didn't want people to think that she might be hearing voices in her head and and hearing things that weren't there the other thing though i find that kind of hurts the police investigation about that though right is because she didn't mention it police didn't really know about it so that would really hamper the investigation because it would be something that you would want to know because then the police can go well okay she's hearing voices and she had a feeling that she was being watched well maybe somebody was watching the property casing the joint and was actually keeping an eye on the family to get an idea of their movements and what have you so this would have been valuable information for the police to know even though i can understand the maid probably would have thought they would have thought that she was crazy it still would have been interesting information to know because then police would go okay well somebody was definitely watching the family the maid said she heard voices and footsteps and everything like that would have been valuable information but i can understand back in those days she didn't want to be seen as somebody who had mental health issues or somebody who was crazy and was hearing voices in her head so i can understand both sides of the, the argument on this one andreas gruber found a strange newspaper from munich on the property in march of 1922 he could not remember buying it and initially believed that the postman had lost the newspaper this was not the case however as no one in the vicinity subscribed to that particular paper just days before the murders gruber told neighbors he found two people's footprints in the fresh snow that led to the forest to a broken door lock in the farm's machine room oddly no tracks headed away later during that same night they heard footsteps in the attic but gruber found no one when he searched the 
building. To make matters even stranger, one of the family's two keys disappeared shortly before the murder took place. Although he told several people about these alleged observations, he refused to accept help and the details went unreported to the police. According to a school friend of the seven-year-old Cazilia Gabrielle, the young girl reported that her mother Victoria had fled from the farm the night before the act after a violent quarrel and only hours after had been found in the forest. On the afternoon of March 31st, 1922, a Friday, the new maid Maria Baumgartner arrived at the farm. Maria's sister had escorted her there and left the farm after a short stay. She was most likely the last person to see the inhabitants alive. It appears that in the late evening, Victoria Gabrielle, her seven-year-old daughter Cazilia, and her parents Andreas and Cazilia were lured to the family barn through the stable where they were murdered one at a time. The perpetrator or perpetrators used a mattock belonging to the family farm and killed the family with blows to the head. The perpetrator moved into the living quarters where, with the same murder weapon, he killed Joseph sleeping in his bassinet and Baumgartner in her bedchamber. Four days passed between the murders and the discovery of the bodies. On April 1st, coffee sellers Hans, and I am going to butcher this name, I do apologise, Hans Schiorski and Edward Schiorski arrived in Hinterkaifeck to take an order. When no one responded to the knocks on the door and the window, they walked around the yard but found no one. They only noticed that the gate to the machine house was open before they decided to leave. Cazilia Gabrielle was absent without excuse for the next few days of school and the family failed to show up for Sunday worship. Assembler Albert Hoffner went to Hinterkaifeck on April 4th to repair the engine of the food shopper. He stated that he had not seen any of the family and had heard nothing but the sounds of the farm animals and the dog inside the barn. After waiting for an hour, he decided to start his repair, which he completed in roughly four and a half hours. There's a really interesting thing about Albert Hoffner that I will go into later in this podcast because it appears that there was some inconsistencies with what happened to him and there was a lot of contention and surrounding what happened in the police investigation to involve him. As I say, I'll get into that later in the podcast. Around 3.30pm, Lauren Schlittenbauer sent his son Jonan, 16, and Stefan Joseph, 9, to Hinterkaifeck to see if they could make contact with the family. When they reported they did not see anyone, Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jacob Sigel. Entering the barn, they found the bodies of Andreas Gruber and his wife, Cazilia Gruber, his daughter, Victoria Gabrielle, and his granddaughter, Cazilia, murdered in the barn. Shortly after, they found the chambermaid, Maria Baumgartner, and the youngest family member, Victoria's son, Joseph, murdered in the home. Inspector George Ringruber and his department investigated the killings. Initial investigations were hampered by the number of people who'd interacted with the crime scene, moved bodies and items around, and even cooked and eaten meals in the kitchen. It wasn't the best crime scene. It was a very, very muddy crime scene. The police first suspected the murder to be robbery, and they interrogated travelling craftsmen, vagrants, and several inhabitants from the surrounding villages. When a large amount of money was found in the house, they abandoned this theory, however. It was clear the perpetrators had remained at the farm for several days, someone had fed the cattle, eaten the entire supply of bread from the kitchen, and had recently cut meat from the pantry. Dr. Jonan Baptist Amula performed the autopsies the day after the gruesome discovery. He determined that the murder weapon was probably a mattock or a pickaxe. A year later, investigators found a pickaxe in the attic of the house during the demolition of the building. Evidence showed that the younger Cazilia had been alive for several hours after the assault. She had torn her hair out in tufts while lying in the straw. The skulls of the victims were removed and sent to Munich, where they were further examined. The skulls, however, were sadly lost during World War II and were never returned. With no clear motive to be gleaned from the crime scene, the police began to formulate a list of suspects. Despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found and the files were closed in 1955. Nevertheless, the last investigations took place in 1986 before Conrad Mueller, who was head of the Kriminalhauptkommissionär, retired. In the inspection record of the court commission, it was noted that the victims were notably drawn to the barn by restlessness in the stable, resulting in noises from the animals. A later 
attempt, however, revealed that at least human screams from the barn could not be heard in the living area. This was only one of the inconsistencies, and there are another very strange and odd things that happened after the crime as well. It was really, really strange, because on the night after the crime, three days before the bodies were discovered, the artisan Michael Plockel happened to pass by Hinterkaifeck. Now, Plockel observed that the oven had been heated by someone. The person who approached him with the lantern and blinded him, whereupon he hastily continued on his way. Plockel also noticed that the smoke from the fireplace had a disgusting smell. This insistence was not investigated, to my knowledge, and there was no investigations conducted to determine what had been burned that night in the oven. On April 1st at 3am, the farmer and butcher Simon Rieblander, on the way home near Brunen, saw two unknown figures at the edge of the forest. When the strangers saw him, they turned around so their faces could not be seen, and later, when he heard of the murders in Indikaifek, he thought it possible that the strangers might be involved. So, there were definitely people that were in and around Hinterkaifeck the days after the murders and there was definitely people that were in the forest there was other people that were around Hinterkaifeck doing some strange things so there were definitely people in and around the area that nobody ever identified and nobody ever found in the middle of May 1927 for example a stranger was said to have stopped a resident of Weidhofen at midnight he asked him questions about the murder and then shouted that he was the murderer before he ran into the woods that stranger also was never identified so there are lots of people that seem to have been around Hinterkaifeck for some unknown reason that were never found, which I find absolutely amazing that all these people were around Hinterkaifeck and they just suddenly disappeared. It's incredible. Now we come to the list of suspects, and there were actually quite a few suspects that were linked to this crime. So the first off was Carl Gabriel. He was the husband of Victoria Gabriel, and he had reportedly been killed in Arras, France, by a shell attack in December of 1914 during the First World War. However, his body has never been recovered. After the murders, people began to speculate on whether he had indeed died in the war. Victoria Gabrielle had just given birth to Joseph in her husband's absence. Two-year-old Joseph was rumoured to be the son of Victoria and her father Andreas, who had had an incestuous relationship that was documented in court and known in the village. He was raping his daughter and the town convicted them both of incest, which is absolutely disgusting. Now, after the end of the Second World War, captives from the Schraumhausen region were released prematurely from Soviet captivity. They claimed they had been sent home by a German-speaking officer who claimed to be the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. Some of these men later revised their statements, however, which diminishes their credibility somewhat. However, many theorize that the Soviet might be Carl Gabriel because those who claim to have seen the man after his reported death testified that Gabriel had wanted to go to Russia. Then there was Lauren Schlittenbauer. Shortly after the death of his first wife in 1918, Schlittenbauer was believed to have had a relationship with Victoria Gabriel and Father Joseph. Schlittenbauer came under suspicion by locals early in the investigation because of his several suspicious actions immediately after the discovery of the bodies. When Schlittenbauer and his friends arrived to investigate, they had to break a gate to enter the barn because of all the doors being locked. However, immediately after finding the four bodies in the barn, Schlittenbauer apparently unlocked the front door with a key and entered the house alone. A key to the house had gone missing several days before the murders, though it is also possible that Schlittenbauer as a neighbour or as Victoria's potential lover might have been given a key. But it's still strange that he just suddenly happens to have a key to be able to unlock the front door, particularly when one of them went missing. It is still very suspicious. When asked by his companions why he had gone into the house alone when it was unclear if the murderer might still be there, Schlittenbauer allegedly stated to them that he went to look for his son Joseph. Regardless of any of the above rumour, it is known that Schlittenbauer had disturbed the bodies at the scene, thus potentially compromising the investigation. For many years after, local suspicion remained on Schlittenbauer because of his strange comments, which were seen as indicating knowledge of details that only the killer would know. According to reports in the files for the case, local teacher Hans Jablaga 
Australia. Discovered Schlittenbauer visiting the remains of the demolished Hinterkaifeck in 1925. Upon being asked why he was there, Schlittenbauer stated that the perpetrator's attempts to bury the family's remains in the barn had been hindered by the frozen ground. This was seen as evidence that Schlittenbauer had intimate knowledge of the conditions of the ground at the time of the murders, although being a neighbour and familiar with the local land, he may have been making an educated guess. Another speculation was that Schlittenbauer murdered the family after Victoria demanded financial support for young Joseph. Before his death in 1941, Schlittenbauer conducted and won several civil claims for slander against persons who described him as the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. There was also the Gump brothers, who were also suspects at this time. Adolf Gump was listed as a suspect as early as April 9th due to his connections to the Free Corps Oberland. Now, a brief history on the Free Corps Oberland. They were a voluntary paramilitary organization that in the early years of the Weimar Republic fought against communist and Polish insurgents. It was successful in the 1921 Battle of Annenberg and became the core of the Strumzelung SA in Bavaria, while several members later turned against the Nazis. I do apologize if I get these names wrong. In 1951, prosecutor Andreas Popp investigated brothers Adolf and Anton Gump in relation to the murders at Hinterkaifeck. Their sister Krizintia Mayer claimed on her deathbed that Adolf and Anton had committed the murders. As a result, Anton Gump was remanded to police custody, but Adolf had already died in 1944. After a short time, however, Anton was dismissed again and in 1954 the case against him was finally discontinued because he could not be proven to have participated in the crime. In 1971, a woman named Therese T wrote a letter citing an event in her youth at the age of 12. She witnessed her mother receiving a visit from the mother of the brother Carl and Andreas S, who have been known to be suspects. The woman claimed that her sons from Sattelberg were the two murderers of Hinterkaifeck. The mother said, Andreas regretted that he lost his penknife in the course of the conversation. In fact, that's interesting because when the farm was demolished in 1923, a pocket knife was found that could not be clearly assigned to anyone. However, the knife could easily have belonged to one of the murder victims. This track was followed without result, and unfortunately, Karez Riger, the former maid of Hinterkaifeck, was certain she'd already seen the penknife in the yard during her service. So the investigation into these brothers never really went any further. Then there was Peter Weber. Peter Weber was named a suspect by Joseph Betts. The two worked together in the winter of 1919 to 1920 as laborers, and they shared a According to Betts, Weber spoke of a remote farm into Kaifek. Weber knew that only one old couple lived there with their daughter and her two children. It is likely he knew about the incest between Gruber and his daughter Betts, although I'm not exactly sure how he knew about that. Betts testified in a hearing that Weber had suggested killing the old man to get the family's money. However, when Betts did not respond to the offer, Weber stopped talking about it. The former maid, Karez Riger, worked from November 1922 to about September 1921 at Hinterkaifeck. She suspected the brothers Anton and Carl Bichler to have committed the murders. Anton Bichler had helped with the potato harvest at Hinterkaifeck and therefore knew the premises. Riger said Bichler talked to her often about the Gruber and Gabrielle family. Anton reportedly suggested that the family ought to be dead. The maid also emphasized in her interrogation that the farm dog who barked at everyone never barked at Anton. In addition, she reported speaking with a stranger through her window at night. The maid believed that it was Carl Bichler, the brother of Anton. She thought that Anton and Carl Bichler could have committed the murder along with George Siegel, who had worked at Hinterkaifeck and knew of the family fortune. Supposedly, it is said, Siegel had broken into the home in November of 1920 and stolen a number of items, though he had denied it. He did state that he had carved the handle of the murder weapon when he was working at Hinterkaifeck and knew that the tool would have been kept in the barn passage. There was the Thaler brothers. The Thaler brothers were also suspected, according to a statement by the former maid, Karinz Riger, the the brothers had already committed several minor burglaries in the area before the crime. Riga said that Joseph Thalia stood at her window at night and asked her questions about the family, but she gave no answer. In conversation, Joseph Thalia claimed
room to know which family member was sleeping in which room and stated that they had a lot of money. During their conversation, Riga noted that there was another person nearby. According to her statement, Joseph Thalia and the stranger had looked at the machine house and turned their eyes upwards. Then... Again, we come to another suspect, which was Paul Mueller. So, author Bill James in his book, The Man from the Train, alleges that a man known as Paul Mueller may have been responsible for the murders. Mueller was the only suspect in the 1897 murder of a Massachusetts family, and James believed Mueller killed dozens of victims based on research in American newspaper archives. The Hintakaifik murders bear some similarities to Mueller's suspected crimes in the United States, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home, use of a blunt edge of a farm tool as a weapon, a pickaxe, and the apparent absence of robbery as a motive. James suspects that Mueller, described as a German immigrant in contemporary media, might have departed US for his homeland after private investigators and journalists began to notice and publicize patterns in family murders across state lines following the brazen 1912 murder of two families in a single night in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and a similar family murder weeks afterwards 100 miles away in neighboring Kansas. The Hinderkaifek case has never officially been solved and has been reopened several times in the last 95 years. Even clairvoyants have been given a chance at it. At this point, it seems unlikely the public will ever know who committed the murders or why. However, whatever secrets the Gruber family kept in life and death, they now slumber alongside them in the grave. More than 100 suspects were questioned by Inspector Ryan Gruber and his team about the farm murders. These included a mixture of both locals and people that had just travelled through the area, although there was one interesting omission. And this is the really kind of interesting caveat to this whole story. Somehow the mechanic who worked on the farm that day that the bodies were discovered wasn't interviewed until 1933, some 11 years after the murders. To this day it's unclear as to why that was. Despite the high amount of suspects spoken to, no one was charged with committing the atrocities. The tragic truth is that this case will likely never be solved. It is almost a century old and very little evidence survived the war. As in most unsolved cases, the Hinterkaifeck murders are just as likely to be committed by someone that has never been brought to any attention as they are by someone mentioned in one of the many theories. The case remains unsolved to this day. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next, on Unanswered Questions. A Thames van that was seen in the area at the time was found some 15 months later with a map inside that had Tracy's name written on it.